بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so this is our third halaqa in the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha. And last week we were covering the basmala or the saying of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And there were two points that I want to recover from last week. The first of them is that we mentioned that the scholars gave three reasons why the basmala is not a part of Surah At-Tawbah. And who can remind me what those three reasons were? Why is the basmala not a part of Surah At-Tawbah? Go ahead. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And what was the third reason? Do you remember? Anyone remember what the third reason was? Ayub, what was it? Excellent. So the three reasons why Surah At-Tawbah does not begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Number one is that the scholars of Tafsir said that in fact Surah At-Tawbah is a continuation of Surah Al-Anfal, the Surah which is before it. The second reason is that there's a direct opposition in terms of the content of the Surah and the statement of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. When you start off with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you're showing Allah as someone who is compassionate, someone that is merciful. And the very beginning of Surah At-Tawbah is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from the disbelievers. So they said you have the wrath of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the anger of Allah. So it's not befitting that you begin with the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah. Number three, they said that if you were to look at contracts from a historical perspective, that every time the Arabs of the past would break their contracts, they would not begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And thus it was a continuation of that tradition. And thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not begin Surah At-Tawbah with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The second thing I wanted to ask was that when it comes to the basmala, when it comes to the basmala, we said that the ba at the beginning of the basmala, it indicates something very special. It indicates something very special. What does the ba indicate? Go ahead. Ahsant. So we said that the ba at the beginning of bismillah is ba al-isti'ana. So that whatever comes after it is what you are seeking help from. So that is why when you say bismillah or bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you're beginning seeking help with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jane, now that we've explained that, let us continue on with where we left off. Last week we were discussing that the statement of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the Quran, the scholars differed, is it a verse from the Quran or is it not? And I want to rectify something that I said last week. I only gave you three opinions because I wasn't sure of the fourth opinion. So I want to give you four, the fourth opinion and give it to you properly. So the first opinion we said is that it is a verse of every surah of the Quran except for Surah At-Tawbah. It is a verse of every surah of the Quran except for Surah At-Tawbah. And this was the opinion of uh, Imam Ahmad, Shafi'i, Abdullah bin Mubarak, Abdullah bin Abbas, and other than them. Then the second opinion is that it is not a verse from the Quran at all. 
except for the verse in Surah An-Naml. So the beginning of Fatiha, the beginning of any other surah, so the Basmalah is not a part of the Quran at all. And this was the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah. This was the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah. And this becomes very important to mention, and this is what I didn't mention last week. This is very important to mention, because when we talk about should the Basmalah be said in Salah or not, you'll see that this is why the scholars of Islam actually differed on this issue. Is that the reason why they differed should it be said or not, is based upon is it an actual verse of the Quran or not. So Imam Malik rahimahullah, he was of the opinion that the Basmala is not a part of the Quran at all. Not a part of the Surah, nor a part of the Quran itself. Then opinion number three. This was that it is a part of Surah Al-Fatiha, and it is not a part of any other Surah in the Quran. It is a part of Surah Al-Fatiha, but not a part of any other Surah in the Quran. And this opinion was attributed to Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah. This opinion was attributed to Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah. Then the fourth opinion is that the Basmala is not a part of the Surah, but in fact is an individual verse from the Quran itself. Is that it is not a part of any Surah, but it is an individual verse of the Quran itself. Now can I get someone to repeat all four opinions to me inshallah, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. What are the four opinions we just mentioned? Is the Basmala part of the Quran? What are the four opinions we just mentioned? Can you give me one of them? Just one of them. Okay, so we said that it is a part of the middle of Surah Al-Namal and it is a part of the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha. This was the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i and this is what we will refer to as opinion number three. Now I need opinions one, two, and four. Can you give me one of the opinions? That's exactly what he just mentioned, so I need a second one. Okay, that's a part of that. So it's a part of the middle of the surah. What we're talking about the basmala is a part of the beginning of the surah. So do you remember any of the opinions? Particularly the opinion of Imam Malik. Do you remember what Imam Malik just said? wants to help him out. We need help him out. It is not a part of the Quran. Yeah, it is not a part of the beginning of any surah of the Quran. So it is in fact not a verse of the Quran except for the verse in Surah Al-Nabal. This was the opinion of Imam Malik and this is what we will refer to as opinion number two. Now who can give me opinions number one and four? Go ahead. Ahsan. So it is a verse of every surah in the Quran. It is a verse of every surah in the Quran except Surah At-Tawbah. And now we're left with opinion number four. And this is what we're going to call the correct opinion as well. So you need to know opinion number four. If you learn any opinion, learn opinion number four. I need a different volunteer. What was opinion number four? Help us out. You forget? No worries. Opinion number four. Ali, help the people, they're relying on you. Opinion number four, what was it? You're calling a brother from outside? No worries, inshallah. Go ahead. Ahsan. So we said that the basmala is an independent ayah from the Quran. So it is not a part of the surah itself, but rather it is an independent ayah of the Quran. So when you're counting the verses of the Quran or the verses of the surah, 
the basmalah will not be a part of it. The basmalah will not be a part of it. And in fact, this is the opinion of the majority of scholars, and this is what we will call the correct opinion. Now, the reason why we're emphasizing this so much is because when you go on to the next topic is that should you recite Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim when you read Quran in Salah, it's all contingent upon this issue. It is all contingent upon this issue. Okay. So opinion number one, I'll go through all of them. Opinion number one is that it is a verse of the beginning, it is the, a verse of every surah, the beginning of every surah, with the exception of Surah At-Tawbah. That is opinion number one. Opinion number two is that it is not a, ver the, uh, a verse from the beginning of any surah in the Quran at all. It is not a, a verse from the beginning of any surah in the Quran at all. Opinion number three is that it is only the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha that is the only time it is considered a verse. It is only at the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha that it is considered a verse. And then number four is that it is not a part of any surah, but it is a part of the Quran. So opinion number two states that it's not a part of the Quran at all. And opinion number four is saying that it is a part of the Quran, but it's not a part of any surah. It's a part of the Quran, but not a part of any surah. So now this leads us to our discussion. Should we be saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim when we are in Salah? Should we be saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim when we are in Salah? This brings us to three opinions. This issue has three opinions on it. Opinion number one is that the Basmalah should be recited out loud in Surah Al-Fatiha. Is that it should be recited out loud in Surah Al-Fatiha. This was the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah. And his proof for this was that just like we recite all of Surah Al-Fatiha out loud, then we should recite Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim out loud as well because the Basmalah is a part of the Surah. The Basmalah is a part of the Surah. So now you see how it is directly tied into our previous discussion. So he said that you should recite Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim out loud. So when the Imam is leading Salah, he should start off with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. That is the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i. This is opinion number one. Now his proof from this, from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his proof for this from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, he narrates that when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to recite, he used to recite out loud with the name of Allah, the All-Merciful, the All-Compassionate. He used to say out loud, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And this hadith is narrated in the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, number 750. In the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, 750. The second proof for this opinion, the second proof of this opinion, is the hadith of Anas ibn Malik narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari. The hadith of Anas ibn Malik narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari. That he said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam, when he would recite, he would elongate the basmalah. He would apply the concept of mud to the basmalah. So he would say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. He would elongate the basmalah. Now the proof for this is that in the elongation of the basmalah, it means that he's applying the rules of tajweed. And the rules of tajweed are only applied to the Quran. So therefore, he said that it uh, is a part of Surah Al-Fatiha, and thus it should be recited like the rest of Surah Al-Fatiha as well. Then the second opinion is that when the imam is leading salah, he should not mention the basmalah not silently nor loudly. So he shouldn't say bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim not silently, and not loudly. 
And this was the opinion of Imam Malik, rahimahullah. This was the opinion of the school of Imam Malik, rahimahullah. And this is based upon the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that we mentioned last week. That the term Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim was revealed to the Messenger of Allah to know when the surahs would begin and when they would end. They would, it was revealed so that the Messenger of Allah would know when the surahs would begin and when they would end. And that is why in the school of Imam Malik, it's not a part of the Qur'an itself. And thus, to recite something in Salah that is not from the Qur'an is inappropriate. And that is why he said that the Basmalah should not be said out loud, nor should it be said silently. Nor should it be said silently. Then the third opinion is that when you're reciting Salah, the Basmalah should be said silently. The third opinion is that the Basmalah should be said silently. This was the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa and the opinion of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah. The opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa and the opinion of Imam Ahmad rahimahumullah. And they based their proof on, this is a, uh, one of the strongest proofs that you'll find and we'll discuss this in quite some detail, is that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah as is reported in Sahih al-Bukhari, he narrates that I prayed behind Abu Bakr, I prayed behind Umar, I prayed behind Uthman, and I prayed behind the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And none of them recited the Basmalah out loud. None of them recited the Basmalah out loud. So now the question arises, how did he reconcile the previous hadith? Where the previous hadith said that Anas ibn Malik said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he would recite the Basmalah, he would elongate it. He would say, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahman. How did he reconcile it with this hadith? So Ibn Abbas commenting on this, he states that the recitation that we do in Salah, so let's take it one by one. The Salatul Fajr, we all know that the two rakahs of Fajr, they are recited out loud. Then for Dhuhr, you have four rakahs where the Imam is completely silent. Same thing for Salatul Asr, four rakahs, the Imam is completely silent. Then you get to Maghrib for the first Two rak'ahs, the imam recites out loud, and the last rak'ah, he leads silently. Then for Aisha, two rak'ahs, the first two are out loud, and the last two are silent. Now this recitation that the imam does, out loud or silently, is this something compulsory, or is this something that is just recommended to do? And it is, just so that you guys know, is that it is something recommended to do. So for example, if, one, if in one salah, the imam does not raise his voice in leading Salatul Maghrib, this, he's going in opposition to the Sunnah, but the Salah is still correct. There's no deficiency in the Salah. He's going in opposition to the Sunnah. He's not doing what the Messenger of Allah did, but the Salah is still correct. Likewise, if someone is leading Salatul Dhuhr, and in Salatul Dhuhr, he starts reciting out loud, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Over here, again, he's going in opposition to the Sunnah, but the Salah is still valid. The Salah is still valid. Now based upon this, you will see that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, based upon different circumstances, he would raise his voice and stay silent. So for example, as we know that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he was giving da'wah to tribes of people. So a tribe would come to the Messenger of Allah and they would say, Ya Rasulullah, we want to accept Islam. So when this would happen and it's time for Salatul Dhuhr, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, wouldn't say, hey, delay your shahada till after Dhuhr so you guys don't have to pray. That's not what would happen. But rather he would say, take your shahada and come and pray with us. 
So in Salat al-Dhuhr, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would start to recite out loud so that the people who newly accepted Islam could repeat after him and they would know what to say. And they would know what to say. So what you learn from this is that the recitation of the Imam, it is something that is recommended and based upon circumstances, you can change it around. Based upon circumstances, you can change it around. So the third opinion on this issue is that the Imam should recite silently in, uh, should recite the Basmala silently in every Salat. So he should, when he starts to recite out loud, he should only begin with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. He should only begin with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Now, why we mention this to be the stronger opinion is because as you may have learned, when it comes to Islamic legislation, when it comes to fiqh, there are four sources of Islamic legislation. There are four sources of Islamic legislation. The first of them is the Qur'an. This is the first form of Islamic legislation. So anytime we're looking for rules about Islam, the first place you will look is the Qur'an. Number two, the second source of Islamic legislation is the sunnah of the Prophet It is the sunnah of the Prophet and these are the statements, the actions, and the acceptances of the Messenger of Allah. So when we talk about Sunnah from a legal perspective, the way the Prophet ﷺ looked, or the way the Prophet ﷺ acted, does not come into our definition of Sunnah. But what comes into our definition of Sunnah is what the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said, what he did, and what the Messenger of Allah ﷺ accepted. This is the legal definition of Sunnah. The third source of Islamic legislation is ijma, or what we will call consensus. And this is what we're going to focus on over here, but we'll get back to it in a second. We'll get back to it in a second. Then the fourth source of Islamic legislation is qiyas. The fourth source of Islamic legislation is qiyas. And I'll give you one example so that you understand what we refer to as qiyas. Now I want you to imagine this bottle of water right now. It's not water, it's actually a bottle of Budweiser. We're going to call this Budweiser, okay? So ignore the Aquafina. It now says Budweiser. Something that we know about Budweiser is two things. We know two things about Budweiser or about the alcohol itself. Let's not mention names. We'll, we know two things about the alcohol. Number one is that it is an intoxicant. It is an intoxicant. It is something that takes away your ability to comprehend and to understand and to act rationally and to act rationally. Number two, the second thing we know about alcohol is that alcohol is haram. Is that alcohol is haram. And this is in the hadith of the Prophet where both of these things are combined, where he said, Kullu muskarin khamar wa kullu khamarin haram. He said that every uh, alcohol is an intoxicant and every intoxicant is haram. So now, how does this play into qiyas? Now that you know these two things, the ruling on it, and why that ruling took place, you learn something new over here. This over here is a tissue. We're going to roll it in a special way so that it represents something. What does this represent? A cigarette? No, man, be more creative. <laughs> it represents marijuana. This is a, a blunt right here. <laughs> it is a plain tissue. There's nothing inside just so no one gets any shady ideas. But this is a blunt right now, okay? So now this blunt over here, you know, the scholars come and tell you, you know, smoking marijuana is haram. Smoking marijuana is haram. But the natural question that should come into your mind is, why is it haram? You know, if you were to look through all of the Quran, not once does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention that marijuana is haram. You look through all of the sunnah, 
Nowhere did the Messenger of Allah ever say that marijuana is haram. So where did we come to the uh, understanding that marijuana is haram in Islam? The way we came to that understanding is through this concept of qiyas. Through this concept of qiyas. So if you remember the alcohol, we said we know two things about alcohol. Number one is that it is haram. And number two, that the reason that it is haram is because it intoxicates. So now that we have this new thing called marijuana, we don't know what the ruling on it is, but we know that the, the, the characteristic of alcohol is present in this as well. And that is the concept of intoxication. So the scholar said that if that reason is present in that uh, object, whatever it may be, then it will take the exact same ruling as well. So this is in a form of intoxicant, this is in a form of intoxicant, therefore they will both have the same ruling, and this is what is known as qiyas. This is known as qiyas. And this is the fourth source of Islamic legislation. Now getting back to the third source, getting back to the third source. The third source of Islamic legislation is what we called consensus, or what we called ijma. And this is actually based upon a verse in the Quran where, the, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nisa, verse 115. Surah An-Nisa, verse 115. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that whoever opposes the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and follows away of other than the believers. Follows away of other than the believers. So this is where the concept of ijma comes on. That the believers have a way and the non-believers have a way. So whoever follows a way of other than the believers, we shall leave him to his affair and his final destination shall be the hellfire. So this is where the concept of ijma actually comes from. Now ijma is also of two types. Ijma is also of two types. But before we get to that, let us define what ijma actually is. Ijma is the consensus of all of the scholars at any one given time on any one particular ruling on any one particular issue. So notice the definition. It is the consensus of all of the scholars at one given time on one given issue with one given ruling. With one given ruling. So they agreed upon what the issue was, they agreed upon the ruling, and they all agreed at one given time. Now, ijma can take place in one of two ways. Ijma can take place in one of two ways. The first way that ijma takes place is that someone come and says, all of the scholars of Islam in this era have said such and such. So what is one of the ijma's that we notice from the time of the Salaf? One of the very first ijma's that you will notice from the time of the Salaf is that there can be no sixth fard salah. One of the very first ijma's that you'll notice is that they came to the consensus that there will be no uh, sixth fard salah. So therefore, no one can come in and say, hey, today I feel more righteous. I want to gather all of the people together and we'll establish uh, a salah called ajr. You know, it's a combination of isha and fajr, whether they pray in the middle. We're going to call it ajr, okay? No one can come and do that because this consensus has already taken place, has already taken place. Now just a side note on this issue is that ijma is the strongest form of legislation, stronger than the Quran and stronger than the Sunnah. The reason why it is stronger than the Quran and the Sunnah is because ijma can only be based upon the Quran and the Sunnah. So it is based upon the Quran and the Sunnah, meaning that they have to have a legal text either from the Quran and the Sunnah 
then you get all of the scholars in agreement, and that is when it becomes strong, a stronger evidence than the Quran and Sunnah itself. So if anyone ever says you that there is ijma on this issue, and it is authentically reported that there is ijma, then you do not need to ask for a Quranic verse. You do not need to ask for a hadith, because the ijma is stronger than those two. The second form of ijma, the second form of ijma, is that when something takes place and no one opposes it. Is when something takes place and no one opposes it. And this is the type of ijma that we see in the narration of um, Anas radiallahu an, the narration of Anas radiallahu an. He says that I prayed behind the Prophet, I prayed behind Abu Bakr, I prayed behind Umar, and I prayed behind Uthman. And all of them began reciting with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. This is what we will call Ijma Sukuti, or the silent Ijma. Meaning that no scholar actually got up and said that Surah Fatiha begins with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. However, from the time of the Prophet, till the time of Abu Bakr, till the time of Umar, till the time of Uthman, no one opposed this. No one said something contradictory to it. So the scholars would consider this a form of ijma sukuti, or a form of silent ijma, or a form of silent ijma. So now, I need a volunteer to explain to me what ijma is. Who can explain to me what ijma is? What is the definition? What is the proof? And what are its different types? Go ahead, help start us off. Ijma is all the way Yep. Yep. on one issue, and they have one ruling on that issue. Excellent, so that is the definition of ijma. Excellent, now what is the proof for ijma? What is the proof that ijma is a proof? Go ahead. Any type of ijma. I mentioned it. Okay, right. Actually, in fact, related to that very issue is that the Messenger of Allah said in a different hadith and the authenticity is varied, but my ummah will never agree upon misguidance. So this, this actually applies not only to the Sahaba, but this, it applies to the ummah as well. And that's why when you study ijma, you will see that based upon this hadith, they considered ijma a proof that the Messenger of Allah is saying that the ummah will never unite upon misguidance. It is not possible that the whole ummah unite upon misguidance. So I'm still looking for a particular verse. What is the verse that I mentioned? Who's speaking? Who's speaking? Who is speaking? <laughs> if you're going to speak, have the courage to raise your hand. So if you're right, you get the credit. If you're wrong, you get blasted appropriately. <laughs> Who is speaking? Hamza, yalla. What is the proof? Surah Nisa, Surah number 4, verse 115. 115. And the only point you need to mention from this verse is that he follows a way of other than the believers, this is where the concept of ijma comes from. Then we said that ijma of, is two types, that there are two types of ijma. What are the two types of ijma? Nafis, help us out. What are the two types of ijma? The, the second one was the silent ijma. The silent ijma, excellent. No one opposed from the time of the Prophet till the time of Uthman. The first one is the exact opposite of silent. No, no, someone spoke, and, someone spoke and said that we have consensed on this issue. That there is consensus that there is no sixth salah. 
right? And you'll mention this, you'll find this from many of the books of the Salaf, that one of the very first ijma' that they mention is that there is no sixth Salah. So they will say that the scholars have conceded to the fact that there is no sixth Salah. So it is the ijma' which comes out loud. Question or addition? Question we'll take at the end, inshallah. So write it down or remember it, and we'll get to it. So that is in terms of sources of legislation. That is in terms of sources of legislation. And that is why we mentioned that the third opinion is the strongest, because it is a form of ijma' sukuti. That the, uh, the basmala and the fatiha, it should be recited silently and not recited out loud. And not recited out loud. Now, the next section that we're going to be covering is, when is it legislated to say the basmala? When is it legislated to say the basmala? And over here, there are two concepts you need to understand. Concept number one is the saying of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, and concept number two is the saying of just Bismillah, just stopping at Bismillah. And you will see that both of these statements are legislated at different times. So our first topic of discussion is that when is it legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim? Okay. Our first topic of discussion is when is it legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim? Number one, the first time it is legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is that when you recite the Quran. When you recite the Quran, this is the first time it is legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim as we just took. The second time it is legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Can you ask the brothers just to move forward a little bit, just in case no one, so no one has to stand in the back, inshallah. Just move forward as much as you can, inshallah. There's a lot of empty room here. Try to fill it up. Jazakumullah khairan. The second time it is legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is when you are writing something of importance. The second time it is legislated to say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is when you are writing something of importance. And who can give me the proof for this? We've mentioned it already. Raise your hand. Go ahead. Excellent. So the first proof is from the Quran itself that when Sulaiman alayhi salam wrote the letter to Sheba. It reads out loud, إِنَّهُ مِنْ سُلَيْمَانِ وَإِنَّهُ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ That indeed this letter is from Sulaiman and it begins with بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ Proof number two is from the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is that hadith number seven in Sahih al-Bukhari hadith number seven in Sahih al-Bukhari The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to write letters to various emperors used to write letters to various emperors and no matter who the emperor was he would always begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. He would always begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So if something is important in your life, it's a document which you are recording, you want to start off with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. This should be for your marriage contracts. It should be for any financial contracts you're doing. If you're, you know, um, any other form of loans that you may have, always begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, as this was the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. These are the only two instances. Incidents that I or instances that I have found that it is legislated to say the whole Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. These are the only two incidents that I found, and if you find any more, please do let me know. We'll add it to our list, inshallah. But these are the only two that I found where one should say Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim completely. The next topic of discussion is that when is it legislated to say Bismillah? When is it legislated to say Bismillah? The first place it is legislated to say Bismillah is at the Beginning of wudu. It is at the beginning of wudu. That the Messenger of Allah وسلم, it is attributed to him that he said that there is no salah for the one who does not make wudu and there is no wudu for the one who does not say bismillah. There is no wudu for the one who does not say bismillah. In terms of the ruling of this, 
Do we have to say Bismillah at the beginning of wudu or not? The correct opinion is that you don't have to do it, but it is recommended to do so. It is, you don't have to do it, but it is recommended to do so. In terms of details, we'll study that in the fiqh class, inshallah. The second time it is legislated to say Bismillah is that when you come inside the masjid, when you come inside the masjid. So the dua that when you enter the masjid, it should start off with Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, uh, Bismillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, Allahumma iftahli abwaab rahmatik So you start off with saying Bismillah, then you send salah and salam upon the messenger of Allah, and then you say, Oh Allah, open the doors of your mercy to me. Open the doors of your mercy to me. This hadith has been a hadith which has been problematic. You will see that the scholars of hadith, some of them authenticated the saying of Bismillah when entering the masjid, and some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. From the current day scholars that said that you should say Bismillah, and they authenticated this hadith, was Shaykh Al-Albani Rahimahullah, was Shaykh Al-Albani Rahimahullah, and we're mentioning it for the sake of benefit. Number three, the third time that you mention Bismillah is that when you're getting ready for a journey and you have boarded your mode of transport. You're getting ready for a journey and you have boarded your mode of transport. So whether it is a ship, whether it is a horse, a camel, whether it is your car, whether it is a bus, whatever it is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions in the Quran and that when they boarded their mode of transportation, they said Bismillah Majriha, that with the name of Allah, that it continued. And this is found in Shaykh Hatim. Do you remember which surah is this in? Surah Hud. I'll give you a prize if you can tell me the ayah number, inshallah. No? It's ayah number 41. Ayah number 41 in Surah Hud. Jazakallah khair. That was very good, mashallah. You know, the Hufad, mashallah, has blessed them with a, a special memory. And this is like, you know, uh, from obviously you'll see that in every halaqa, in every gathering. The Hufad of the Qur'an, they'll always stick out from the rest of the students. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed them with the memory of the Qur'an. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of us with the memorization of the Qur'an. Ameen. And that should be one of our goals for Ramadan, four weeks away and coming, is that let's try to memorize as much of the Qur'an as we can. And you can think about this, subhanAllah, that if a man was to live 40 years, let's just say 40 years, and he started memorizing the Qur'an at the age of 10, if he just did one juz every year, by the time he would turn 40, he would be a hafiz of the Qur'an. Just one juz every year. That's all he'd have to do. If he lived 40 years, from just from the age of 10 alone, and we're not talking about younger than that, he would have finished the Qur'an by the time he turns 40. So it's that gradual process that if you continue on that, ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make it easy for you. So the third time is that when you board your mode of transportation. A second proof of this is the hadith of Jabir narrated in Sahih Muslim that the Messenger of Allah told him, that mount the camel and say Bismillah. Mount the camel and say Bismillah. This is found in Sahih Muslim. The fourth time it is legislated to say Bismillah is that when you're sacrificing an animal. When you're sacrificing an animal. And in Islam, we have two types of sacrifice. We have two types of sacrifice. A sacrifice which is affiliated with a reason and then sacrifice which is just for the sake of eating. Sacrifice for the sake of a reason, and sacrifice for eating. So sacrifice for the sake of a joyous and happy moment is that when the walima happens, the Prophet commanded um, the companion Abdurrahman ibn Auf, awlim bishah, that have a walima, have a party with the people, even if it is just by sacrificing one sheep. And likewise, when we have children, the Messenger of Allah told us that when it's a boy, you sacrifice two sheep. When it's a girl, you sacrifice one sheep. 
So these are the happy and joyous moments. And then the second time is that just for regular eating, just for regular eating, that when you sacrifice these animals, they need to be sacrificed for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They need to be sacrificed for the sake of Allah. That sacrificing in our religion is an act of ibadah, is an act of ibadah. And this is like, uh, you know, and unfortunately, uh, a reflection of a surah that all of us know, but unfortunately we don't reflect on too much. That is Surah Al-Kawthar, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, That indeed we have given you this great abundance, so pray and sacrifice for your Lord. Meaning that the meat that you sacrifice, it is an act of ibadah. It is an act that we do to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is legislated to say the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is legislated to say the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is found in Surah Al-An'am, verse 118. Surah Al-An'am, verse 118. Number five. Number five. When you begin to eat. When you begin to eat. And this is narrated by one of the young companions. He says that I was with the Messenger of Allah in his house as a young boy. And the Messenger of Allah he said, O oh young boy, begin by eating with the name of Allah. Eat with your right and eat with that which is close to you. So he gives us three etiquettes over here when you're eating. Number one is that you begin with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You begin with Bismillah. Number two is that you eat with your right hand. You eat with your right hand. And we'll comment on this a little bit, inshallah. And number three, you eat with that which is close to you. You eat with that which is close to you. Now these are the three explicit benefits from the hadith. There is one hidden implicit benefit that we derive from this hadith. What is that? What is the hidden implicit benefit from this hadith? So he says that begin with the name of Allah, eat with your right, and eat with that which is close to you. Now focus on this last point. The last point, eat with that which is close to you. What is the fourth lesson we want to derive that we can derive from this? <laughs> okay, that's one way of looking at it. That's one way of looking at it. But I'm looking at something bigger than that. Sorry, just one second. Go ahead. Ahsant. That is the implicit uh, lesson that we derive from this hadith. That from the sunnah of the Prophet is that you eat with other people and that you don't eat by yourself. So this whole concept of having individual plates is a very, you know, I won't say anti-Islamic, but at the very least, it wasn't the way of the Messenger of Allah Is that whenever he would have food, he would invite the people, please come and join in, and everyone would eat together. So that now when you're in that situation, it's not befitting that you reach over someone else's you know, side and you start taking their food. But rather you should eat from the side which is close to you. And our brother Munibi mentioned a good point, that this also indicates that you know, try to suffice yourself with food. That one of the problems that comes to food is that you want to eat as much as you possibly can, but rather try to suffice yourself as much as possible, and Allah will put barakah in that food for you. And this is why the Messenger of Allah he tells us, that food for two is sufficient for three, and food for three is sufficient for four. Because it's not about the quantity of food that you have, but it's about the amount of barakah that Allah has placed in that food. It's about the amount of barakah that Allah has placed in that food. The second point I want to comment on this hadith is the issue of eating with the right hand. The issue of eating with the right hand. I know that some people feel that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created them left-handed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created people left-handed, and there's no problem in being left-handed. But when it comes to particular issues, Islam commands you with something specific. And in those situations, 
The more you struggle with those things, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you. So for example, Islam commands us that when we eat, we should eat with our right hands. Islam commands us that when we clean ourselves, when we go to the bathroom, that it should be with the left hand and not with the right hand, and not with the right hand. Islam commands us that when you shake hands, you shake hands with the people with the right hand. So in these sort of things, even though you may be left-handed and there's more of a challenge, there's more of a hardship, then know that the more of the challenge there is and more of the hardship there is, then the more than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you. And this is based upon the hadith of the Prophet when he talks about the reciters of the Qur'an, where he says that the ones who recite Qur'an with ease, they will have one reward. But the ones who recite Qur'an with difficulty and they keep trying and striving, then they will have two rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One for reciting and one for struggling. So now similarly here it comes to food. A lot of the times it's very convenient to eat and drink with the left hand. Because you know your right hand may be dirty or you may be left-handed or you may have another excuse. But try your best to eat with your right hand and drink with your right hand. And this is from the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa Now, a lot of the times you'll see that the following happens that someone's drinking and they will take their glass and put it like this and then they will drink. And they try to compensate this for you know, drinking or, or eating with their left hand. But in actuality, who, which hand is this person drinking with right now? The right hand or the left hand? He's, he's drinking with the right? No, he's drinking with the left. The reason we say he's drinking with the left is that if, which, if you were to take away one of the hands, would the container stay? Would that container stay? So for example, if you take away the right hand, you can still sort of retain you know, the, the, the bottle. But if you were to take away the left hand altogether, that is the base. Then this thing completely falls and tumbles over. So in those sort of situations, hold the glass completely. Hold the glass completely so that there is no doubt. Hold the glass completely. Now a lot of the times why people don't do that is they don't want to get the glass dirty. What they fail to realize is whether you put your hand on it or not, it still needs to be washed. So it does make a difference, you know? So just get it dirty, and when it gets washed, it gets washed. It's not that big of a deal. So try your best to stick with your right hand. And the biggest reason of doing this is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, do not eat and drink with your left hand because shaitan eats and drinks with his left hand. So you're imitating shaitan in doing that. You're imitating shaitan in doing that. That was number five. Directly related to number five is that saying Bismillah when you enter the house. We're not going to make it a sixth category. We're just going to continue it as number five because the hadith comes together. The hadith comes together. And that is when you enter your house, you should say Bismillah as well. When you enter your house, you should say Bismillah as well. And this is narrated in the hadith of Jabir radiallahu an. It is narrated in the hadith of Jabir radiallahu an in Sahih Muslim. Where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, that whoever says Bismillah when he eats, then shaitan will have no food to eat that night. And whoever says Bismillah before he enters his house, then shaitan will have no place to sleep that night. And here's a, you know, a small funny story that some of the historians mention on this topic. Um, this is the Qareen of Al-Hasan al-Basri. Just so you understand this context, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he created a companion from the jinn for each and every one of us. Each and every one of his creation, he has a companion of, from the jinn. And the job of this Qareen or this companion is to whisper evil things to you. It's just to get you to do bad deeds. So every time you fight it off, you're getting a good deed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the meeting of two Qareens. One of them is the Qareen of Al-Hassan al-Basri and the other Qareen is just like your average Joe Blow Qareen. 
So uh, the scholars mentioned that when these two Koreans, they actually met, they had a typical conversation. You know, they hadn't seen each other in a long time. And they're like, you know, how have you been? Where have you been for such a long time? I haven't seen you. And you know, one Korean says to the other, you know, you look so good. You know, it looks as if you're keeping well. Then this Korean, the second Korean, he says to him, Hassan al-Basri, you know, I wish I could say the same about you. You know, what has happened to you? You look so terrible. You're extremely skinny. Your hair is all over the place. And it looks as if you haven't slept properly in, in months. And the Korean of al-Hassan al-Basri, he says that al-Hassan al-Basri, he has not ceased to say Bismillah for the past 40 years. For the past 40 years. So I've not had any good food to eat, nor have I had a proper place to sleep. Nor have I had a proper place to sleep. And this is a story that uh, scholars mention. Allahu alam if there's any authenticity to this. But this is something that they mention. Now we move on to number six. The sixth time it is legislated to say Bismillah. The sixth time it is legislated to say Bismillah. And that is when a husband and wife have marital relations. That is when a husband and wife have marital relations. This is reported in Sahih al-Bukhari from Ibn Abbas. It is reported in Sahih al-Bukhari from Ibn Abbas that when they start, they should begin with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When they, they, when they start, they should begin with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number seven. Actually, just to comment on that point over there, a lot of the scholars of fiqh, they actually had a contention with this hadith. They had a contention with this hadith. And inshallah, it's a mature audience, so I, you can appreciate where I'm coming from. The contention they had with this hadith is that they said that the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should not be mentioned while a person's aura is not covered. While a person's aura is not covered. And Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah specifically mentions this hadith that dhikr of Allah should be made at all, sorry, dhikr of Allah can be made at all times. This is the chapter heading that he gives it. And the reason why he mentions this is to contend those scholars that said that the dhikr of Allah cannot be made when your aura is uncovered. Now obviously when a husband and wife are having marital relations, their auras will be exposed. And here the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is telling them that before they begin, they should say Bismillah. So Imam al-Bukhari used this hadith to say that the dhikr of Allah, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can be made at all times with the exception of one time. With the exception of one time. And that is when an individual is physically in the act of going to the bathroom. That is when an individual is physically in the act of going to the bathroom. And that is why when you leave the bathroom, you make the dua ghufranak. Oh Allah, I seek your forgiveness. What are you seeking forgiveness for? You're not seeking forgiveness that you had this natural urge that Allah created you with. There's nothing to seek forgiveness for. But the reason why you're seeking forgiveness at that time is because at the time when you're physically going to the bathroom, you're not allowed to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not in your mind, not in your heart, not on your tongue. The remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should not be there. And that is why when you exit the bathroom, you say, Ghufranak, Ya Rabbi, or that Ghufranak, Oh Allah, I seek your forgiveness, because I was unable to make dhikr for you at that time. I was unable to make dhikr for you at that time. So the dhikr of Allah can be made at all times, with the exception of when a person is physically going to the bathroom. Number seven, is that when you exit from your house, when you exit from your house, you leave with your left foot, you say, Bismillah, and you say, Tawakkaltu ala Allah, wa la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. That you exit with your left foot, you say Bismillah, and you say Tawakkaltu ala Allah, wa la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. This is narrated from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, and is narrated in Abu Dawood. The hadith of Anas ibn Malik, and narrated in Abu Dawood. Number eight, the eighth time where it is legislated to say Bismillah, 
is three times in the morning and three times in the evening. So you'll know in Islam that we have a form of dhikr, which is known as adhkarul sabah and adhkarul masa, remembrances of the morning and remembrances of the evening. The remembrances of the morning take place after Salatul Fajr. Remembrances of the evening, they take just before Salatul Maghrib. Some scholars even said after Salatul Asr, but that is when they take place. So from the four forms of remembrances of the morning and remembrances of the evening is the saying of Bismillah three times. So you will say, Bismillah alladhi la yudurru ma'ismihi shay'un fil ardi wa la fis wa huwa samiul alim. That the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that whoever says this three times in the morning or three times in the evening shall not be harmed by any evil throughout the day. He shall not be harmed through by any evil throughout the day. Number nine, when a person is about to go to sleep. When a person is about to go to sleep. Before he goes to sleep, he says Bismillah and he places uh, his right hand on his cheek and he sleeps on his right side. And he says, O oh Allah, I placed my side for you. And this is found in the hadith of Abu Azhar al-Anmari radiallahu an. And it is found in Abu Dawud. It is found in Abu Dawud. Number 10 is that he says, Bismillah, before going into the bathroom. He says, Bismillah, before going to the bathroom. So before he says the dua of entering the bathroom, he says, Bismillah. Again, the scholars of hadith, they differed. Is this hadith is this authentic or not? From the scholars of our time that said it was authentic was Shaykh al-Albani rahimahullah. But the scholars differed on this hadith. Is it authentic or not? The 11th time that it is legislated to say Bismillah is that when one is having trouble with their mode of transportation. So in the past, if the horse would not move or the camel would not move, they would hit it and say Bismillah. Similarly, in our times, you know, you're driving your car, it's not starting. Hit it a couple of times, say Bismillah, and see what happens. You never know, inshallah. And this, was uh, this is narrated by Abu Dawood as well. This is narrated by Abu Dawood as well. Number 10 is the, uh, sorry, number 12 is when a person finds pain in any form of his body, he should say Bismillah three times, blow it on his hand, and put it on that place. He should say Bismillah three times, and put it on that place. This is narrated in Sahih Muslim, in Sahih Muslim. Then we move on to number 13. When you place the dead inside of the grave, when you place the dead inside of the grave, that is when it is legislated to say Bismillah. That is when it is legislated to say Bismillah. This was narrated by Abu Dawood as well. This narrated by Abu Dawood as well. And the last one that we'll mention is number 14. And this com uh, encompasses several things. When you are locking a door, when you are closing the lights, when you are covering your water containers or when you're covering your food containers. So it encompasses four things. The locking and closing of doors, the turning off of the lights, the covering of water containers, and the covering of food containers. The message of Allah وسلم, he taught Jabir an, that when you close the lights and you close the doors and you cover your containers, then do each one of them by saying Bismillah. Do each one of them by saying Bismillah. And this hadith is narrated by both Bukhari and Muslim. This hadith is narrated by both Bukhari and Muslim. Now, before we open up the floor for questions and answers, and I know quite of you ha uh, have questions, I just want to conclude with two things. I want to conclude with two things. Number one, what are the benefits that we derive from the basmala? What are the benefits that we derive from the basmala? 
And the second thing we'll conclude with is where was Surah Al-Fatiha actually revealed? Where was Surah Al-Fatiha actually revealed? So let us take some points, of, some points of benefit from the legislation of the Basmala. Number one is that it is an act of the prophets. It is an act of the prophets. And it is authentically reported that three prophets used to begin with Bismillah. Three prophets used to begin with Bismillah. You guys have two of them already. One of them was Sulaiman, as we mentioned in the verse of Surah Al-Naml. The second of them was the Prophet Sallallahu The third of them, who can tell me? You raised your hand. Sorry? Not Nuh Salam. The same thing? Okay. I'm talking about Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. I'll make that explicit. I'm talking about the statement of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. No. Go ahead. In the belly of the whale. Why in the belly of the whale? La. The answer is Yunus. That is correct. But that's not the incident. That's not the incident. I'll give you the incident. The famous incident of a taif The famous incident of a taif when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was expelled from the people of Ta'if, he, you know, he left in a state of, of distress that they had pelted him, he's bleeding. And he met a man that had some grapes with him. He met a man that had some grapes with him. This man offered him some grapes, and the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he began with Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. This becomes an interesting point. He began with Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. And the man says, Where did you learn this statement from? And he says that I am the Messenger of Allah and it was revealed unto me. So the Prophet asks him, where do you know of this statement from? He says, indeed, I am from such and such people. And his, you know, he mentions his tribe. And that tribe, it takes its lineage back to Yunus alayhi salam. It takes its lineage back to Yunus alayhi salam. So it shows you how it continued. So Yunus alayhi salam was also narrated to have said the Basmala. It is also narrated to have said the Basmala. Now this becomes a point of contention over here is because while this hadith is authentic, it clearly shows that when the Messenger of Allah began to eat, he didn't just begin with Bismillah, but rather he began with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and then the scholars differed. Should we say Bismillah or Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim? And we'll leave that for another time, inshallah ta'ala. You want to answer that? No questions just yet. So that is the first benefit, is that you're following the acts of the prophets who are the best of creation. Number two, is that this, it creates a strong bond with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you get into the habit of saying Bismillah all the time, it creates a strong bond between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, it prevents an individual from committing sin. It prevents an individual from committing sin. So a person gets in the habit of saying Bismillah, when he's about to commit a sin, he's not going to say Bismillah and commit that sin. But rather it will serve as a reminder for him. It will serve as a reminder for him. Number four, is that it is a reminder that Allah's mercy always overcomes His wrath. It is a reminder that Allah's mercy always overcomes His wrath. And this is very important that you understand what the Basmala actually entails. So we said that the term Allah is Lafdul Jalala, and it is derived from Al-Ilah, the one that is worshipped. Now the one that is worshipped means it is the one that you are worshipping, the one that you submit to, the one that has control over everything in your life. So this is like a form of greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then you continue on with Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. We mentioned that Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, that the strongest opinion on this issue 
is that Ar-Rahman is the one that owns mercy and possesses mercy, and Ar-Rahim is the one that displays and manifests mercy. So Allah, not only does He display and manifest mercy, but all mercy emanates from Him alone. So Allah shows you that while He is Allah and everyone submits themselves to Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds you that He is merciful and He is compassionate. That Allah's mercy will always overcome His wrath. And that is why Allah is mentioned once, but Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, or the concept of mercy, is mentioned twice. To show you that mercy is the greatest attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The last point, the last point that we mention pertaining to the Bismillah is a reminder for us in how we are constantly in need of help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because we mentioned that the ba at the beginning of the Bismillah is that I begin in the name of Allah seeking His help. You begin in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seeking His help. So it is a reminder that everything that you do is a means from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something so important to understand that you know, a lot of times people are asked, you know, why are you doing certain acts? So you're protesting. Why are you protesting? Oh, we're protesting in the name of freedom. Oh, we're writing a letter. We're writing a letter in the name of our human rights. But at the end of the day, when you begin with Bismillah, you're beginning in the name of Allah, that we're doing this act for the sake of Allah. So no matter what it is that you're doing, it will become an act of worship. And that is why acts such as eating, acts such as drinking, acts such as marital relationships with your wife. It becomes an act of ibadah, even though it is something that you need, something that you enjoy. It becomes an act of ibadah because you're mentioning the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in it. So you will see that it is encompassing in the sense that it is a reminder of why you are doing things and it is a reminder of how you're constantly in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is a reminder that any good thing that happens in your life is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The food that you're eating, the sleep that you're about to take, the, the drink that you're drinking, anything that you're doing is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So those are the benefits. The last thing I want to mention is where was Surah Al-Fatiha revealed? Where was Surah Al-Fatiha revealed? You'll notice that amongst people, there are a lot of opinions. Some scholars will mention that Surah Fatiha was revealed in Medina. Some scholars will mention that Surah Fatiha was revealed both in Mecca and in Medina. But all of those opinions, they have no basis whatsoever, and they're not taken into consideration. Why? Because there is ijma, verbal consensus, that Surah Al-Fatiha was revealed in Mecca. It was revealed in Mecca. Now let us explain how this ijma took place. Let us explain how this ijma took place. There's a verse in the Quran. This is in uh, Surah Al-Hajar, verse, verse 87. Surah number 15, verse 87. Surah 15, verse 87. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this verse, وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَاكَ سَبْعًا مِنَ الْمَثَانِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we have given you the seven oft-repeated verses. We have given you the seven oft-repeated verses. Now this is in Surah Al-Hajr, Surah Al-Hajr, which is Surah number 15. And this Surah by consensus was revealed in Mecca. This Surah by consensus was revealed in Mecca. This consensus is mentioned by Ibn Atiyah, the famous scholar of Tafsir who had Al-Muharrar Al-Wajiz, and it is mentioned by Imam Al-Qurtubi who had uh, Al-Jami Al-Ahkam Al-Quran. So these two scholars, Ibn uh, Atiyah and Imam Al-Qurtubi, both mention consensus that Surah Al-Hajr was, uh, was revealed in Mecca. Now, this verse that mentions the seven oft-repeated verses, why is it referring to Surah Al-Fatiha? 
It is referring to Surah Al-Fatiha because the Messenger of Allah وسلم, himself said that this verse is referring to Surah Al-Fatiha. This is based upon the hadith that is found in Sahih al-Bukhari. It is the hadith found in Sahih al-Bukhari where Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu was praying. He was praying. And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he called him. But Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, he continued praying and he delayed responding to the Messenger of Allah so eventually when he goes to the Messenger of Allah he says, Oh Abu Sa'id, did you not hear the statement of, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where Allah said, Istajibu lillahi wa lil-rasul idha da'akum yuhyikum That respond in haste to the Messenger of Allah when they call you to that which brings you life. He says, yes, I have heard that, Ya Rasulullah, but I was praying. So the Messenger of Allah at that time, he, te- he tells Abu Sa'id that before you leave, I will teach you the greatest surah in the Quran. I will teach you the greatest surah in the Quran. And in another verse, he says, I will teach you the seven oft-repeated verses that Allah is referring to. I will teach you the seven oft-repeated verses that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. And then before he left the masjid, um, the Messenger of Allah taught him Surah Al-Fatiha. The Messenger of Allah taught him Surah Al-Fatiha. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is telling Abu Sa'il al-Qudri that the seven oft-repeated verses in the Qur'an is Surah Al-Fatiha. And the seven oft-repeated verses is derived from Surah Al-Hajr, which was revealed in Mecca by consensus. So therefore, Surah Al-Fatiha also had to be revealed in Mecca. Now this is the textual evidence. Then there is ijma' on this as well, as mentioned by Ibn Atiyah and Imam Al-Qurtubi as well. And we'll mention a third thing, which is the logical evidence. The logical evidence is that when was Salah legislated? Salah was legislated in Mecca, in the Isra' wal Mi'raj. In the Isra' wal Mi'raj. This is when the five daily Salahs were legislated. And we know that even prior to Salah being uh, legislated as five, the Muslims used to pray twice a day. They used to pray twice a day. So it does not make sense that Isra' wal Mi'raj took place and Salah becomes legislated, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not teach them how to pray. And Surah Al-Fatiha, according to the correct opinion, is a pillar from the pillars of Salah. Is a pillar from the pillars of Salah. And this is something that Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions, just as a, a, a logical proof. He said that there is no evidence whatsoever that alludes to the fact that the Muslims used to pray without Surah Al-Fatiha. That even when the Muslims were praying two rak'ahs, that there's no evidence that you used to pray without Surah Al-Fatiha alone. And he goes on to mention that there's a proof that there, one of the yani, supporting evidences for this is that the scholars have said that one of the first surahs that was revealed completely was Surah Al-Fatiha. One of the very first surahs that was revealed completely was Surah Al-Fatiha and that was so that the Muslims can pray with it. So now we've officially began with our tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha, alhamdulillah. That is in terms of where Surah Al-Fatiha was revealed. Next week, we'll continue with the names of Surah Al-Fatiha and we'll go on with ta'ala, the virtues of Surah Al-Fatiha and if time permits, get into the very first verse as well. Get into the very first verse as well. ta'ala. With that, we'll open the floor for questions. Five questions as usual, inshallah. Ayub, you have first question.
Okay. Okay, excellent. So in these sort of situations, I'll give you a, a general guideline. And every time you're beginning a new surah, you should begin with Bismillah, because Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, because it is a part of the Quran. So every time you're beginning a new surah, you begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, but you don't say it out loud. You don't say it out loud. If you begin from the middle, it is recommended that you just say "Audhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim" without mentioning the the basmala over there. Without mentioning the basmala over there, make sense? Excellent. Question number two. Go ahead. It is permissible to do so, but it is in opposition to the sunnah. So, for example, someone's praying Maghrib, the first two rakahs he's going to read out loud because that's what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, taught us to do. In the third rakah, he also taught us to stay silent. He also taught us to stay silent. But if there's a reason not to stay silent, so for example, you know, you're praying and it's extremely dark and you actually lose concentration in your salah. So, in those times, you can say Surah Fatiha out loud, even in the third rakah. And there's no problem in that. And there's no problem uh, in that. So the general case scenario is that you should follow the sunnah. So follow that. But if you have a reason not to follow it, then it is permissible as well. And the Prophet showed us that when he used to teach the new converts. When he used to teach the new converts. No, you wouldn't get a bad sin. But it's still something you should, you should try to avoid. Because following the sunnah is better. Because following the sunnah is better. Good question. Number three, go ahead. You can say there's a recommended time and then there's a permissible time. The recommended time is after Fajr and that you know, you're staying in the area where you prayed your Salah and you keep saying your Adhkar till the daytime comes. That is the recommended time. The permissible time is that you can say it any time before Salatul Asr. Any time before Salatul Asr. Same thing with the evening. The recommended time is that you say it after Salat al-Asr till Salat al-Maghrib, but the permissible time is that you say it all the way up until Isha time. You say it all the way up until Isha time. Allahu Ta'ala Alam. Number four, go ahead. Okay, so excellent. Like the, when we're talking about the dua of, um, of saying Bismillah, this is what they will say, Lirrukub. So this is for mounting your mode of transportation. So it's not your suffer hasn't begun yet. So when you get into your car, you will say Bismillah. That's what it's referring to. Before you even begin your travel. So let's just say you want to get into your car, you want to make sure you know, everything's in your car. As you're getting into your car, you will say Bismillah. But once you turn your car on and you actually start moving towards your destination, that is when you will say, depending on how long your journey is, if it's a short journey, you just say, This is for the short journeys. This is the part of the dua al-ruqub. But if it's a long journey, then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, taught us that you should say the following dua. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahumma 
اللهم أنت الصاحب في السفر والخليفة في الأهل اللهم إنا نعوذ بك من وعثاء السفر وكعابة المنظر وسوء المنقلب في المال والأهل This dua you'll find in Hishn al-Muslim This is the actual dua of safar So when a person is making a long journey For example, you're traveling to Edmonton You're traveling to Toronto This is the dua of safar that should be said However, if you're just making short distances Like you're going from the masjid to your house At that time it is sufficient just to say Subhanallah sakhara lana hadha Wa ma kunna lahum mukhrinin wa inna ila rabbina lamunqalibun I want you to answer that question. How would you get into your car with your left foot first? <laughs> Even if you're on the passenger side, how are you going to get in with your right foot then? <laughs> in general, Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that the Prophet uh, that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to prefer doing things with his right in all of his affairs. So if one has the ability to do it with the right without putting yourself in extra hardship, then he should do so. But in a car, I don't believe you can physically do that without facing the other way. <laughs> so the car would be the exception. But if you have a horse, mashallah, or a camel, or any other form of riding beast, you know, try to mount it with the right side, ta'ala. That was question number four, correct? The last question, bismillahi ta'ala, and we'll conclude. No, you don't have to say anything. Like in this situation, it's something which is permissible. So the only time you will correct someone in salah is in one of two cases. Either they've made a mistake in the recitation that is when you will correct them by repeating the correct version of their recitation. Or number two, is that their actions have gone against one of two things. Either one of the pillars of salah. So for example, from standing, he went straight into sajda without going into ruku'ah. At that time, you would say, subhanallah. And if it's a woman, she would clap like this to indicate that the imam has made a mistake. That is the, the first time. The second time, is that if he forgets one of the obligations of the salah. An obligation of the salah, an example of this is the tashahud. So for example, in the second rakah, you're meant to say, That is an obligation of the salah. At that time, if the imam stands up without sitting for the tashahud, same thing, you will say, Subhanallah, or the woman will clap her hand to indicate that he's made a mistake. And no other times should you correct the imam. No other times should you correct the imam. Go ahead. And that's because they don't know. And I mean, the point is to inform the imam. The sunnah way of informing the imam is that the Messenger of Allah taught us that the man should say tasbih, and the woman has a, 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 a tasfiq, a tasfiq, which is the, the hitting of the hand or what is clapping. So the man should say subhanallah, and the woman should hit her hand to indicate the imam that he's made a mistake. Wallahu ta'ala alam. We'll conclude with that. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك I'll see you guys next week والسلام عليكم
alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Before we conclude,